So if you have a pen or a pencil and you're going to take notes in your notes, I want to uh, help you out. So we're doing a chronological journey through the Gospels in the notes that you have that was in the bulletin. Our first point, a man with great need. We're going to be teaching from Mark chapter 3. So you can underline Mark chapter 3. In the second point, a great multitude sought Jesus. I'm going to take that from Matthew chapter 12, and you can underline that one. And then uh, to make it fair, I went to Luke in the third point, Luke chapter 6. You can underline that one. Because we're in the synoptic gospels, these accounts are being retold through the various uh, writers of the authors of the gospels, I was going to say disciples, I guess they technically, they were all disciples, but Mark, um, he was a later follower of Christ. He was around when Jesus was here on this earth and was probably a young boy at that time, according to the book of Acts. We understand that he was a young man. And so taking it from the three different synoptic gospels, but in our first point, coming from Mark's gospel, chapter 3, second point coming from Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, third point from Luke's gospel, chapter 6. So we're in the second year of Jesus' ministry, and it's known by the theologians as the year of popularity. And opposition at this point is beginning to increase greatly surrounding Jesus. It's coming from religious and it's coming from political leaders. And also there would be Toward the end of Jesus' ministry, Rome would be in play, of course, because he was hung on a Roman cross. The crucifixion uh, on a Roman cross, in that sense, was Rome, the Gentiles doing that. But here, mostly, it is the Jews. We have religious and political leaders, and we're going to meet one of the political sects that uh, was part of that coming against Jesus in this passage today. One of the issues the religious rulers zeroed in on uh, against Jesus was he liked to heal people, but they didn't, I guess, mind that so much, but he should never heal someone on the Sabbath day. And Jesus began to do that. In fact, we find that at least six times in the Gospels, it tells us in six different occasions that Jesus healed someone on a Sabbath day. And they also, the religious rulers, quickly learned something about Jesus. They began to watch him, observing him, hearing him teach and heal others. But as the enemies of Christ, they quickly learned that he loved to help those who had great need. And as we will see here in Mark chapter 3, they zero in on the person in the synagogue that had the greatest need and they wanted to see if Jesus would do a work in this man's life. So that brings us to Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And today I titled this message, Stretch Forth Your Hand, from this passage that we're going to begin and look at in our first point. And we're going to see a man with great need. Taking it from Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it's also found in Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 6. And it tells us, I'll go ahead and read the context for us. And it says to us that he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there with a withered hand. 
and they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Then he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. So when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out immediately plotting with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So the Greek implies this man with the withered hand that something had happened to his hand that possibly we could, the Greek word would mean to desiccate, to to become dry or to waste away. So maybe he had had a stroke and he was unable to use uh, his hand, which is common in stroke victims sometimes. But something had happened to cause his hand to not be useful as it was before. And if you take away a man's hand, you can take away his livelihood, especially in those days in the time of Christ. And so we find that there was an issue. The enemies of Christ, they had already learned that Jesus likes to help those with great need. They looked around the synagogue and they was just like, hey, buddy, look, look, that guy, withered hand. I bet Jesus wants to do something. He's got to do a work. Let's watch him. Make sure he doesn't do it on the Sabbath. And so the keeping of the Sabbath became a point of contention again between Jesus and the religious rulers. And though God had given Israel a day of worship and of rest, Originally, when they came out of slavery, when they came out of bondage, I pretty much guarantee you that they had known a seven day a week work week. And God gave them one day a week that they would not even, the wives wouldn't even have to cook. They even took off the day of uh, cooking, they prepare everything ahead of time, make the meals easy on that day, to have fellowship with God, to have fellowship with the families. They had taken a day that the Lord had given them for a day of worship and rest. They turned it into a day of rules and of bondage. And this was because as teachers of the law, they tried to better explain the intents of God's word. And they actually ended up polluting the very word of God, polluting the very word of God, bringing a bondage that God never intended As I was saying that, I was thinking of uh, a pastor that I read a couple of weeks ago after Roe versus Wade was overturned in our Supreme Court. And this pastor on social media said, nowhere in the Bible does it say that abortion is wrong. This is, uh, how did he word it? It's kind of a social issue. And it's like, really? (laughs) Nowhere in the Bible. Of course, it doesn't use the word abortion. But it does say, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill. It does speak about the importance of life in the womb several times in several different portions of Scripture. So we don't have to have it spelled out in black and white sometimes to know the intent of the Word of God. But we have pastors in pulpits today who are trying to satisfy the ever-changing whims of humanity 
begin to water down the word of God. And in fact, when they do that, they make the word of God to have no effect. Jewish tradition taught, as with the work of healing on the Sabbath, they were so strict about this that they saw any kind of medical healing of mending a body as work. And so therefore, all they were allowed to do when someone was wounded or sick on the Sabbath, all they could do was keep them alive, do what it was ever necessary to make sure they made it to the end of the Sabbath. But then it was after that they were able to administer acts of healing, uh, give them medicine. So they could only stabilize, but not do anything that would bring about healing to that person. So if you needed stitches, you had a big cut, you were wounded, you better be in trouble. You're going to be in trouble if you were there on the Sabbath in the time of Christ without Jesus being there. He could certainly touch and heal you, and no doubt he would. But acts of healing, like setting a bone or giving medicine to the sick, had to wait until after the Sabbath. Sorry, bud, your shoulder's totally dislocated. Just six more hours, we'll get to you, okay? We'll pop that baby back in. Just gimp around a little bit longer, and it'll be okay. So Jesus, verses 3 and 4, he said to the man with the withered hand, He knew the thoughts of the enemies that were there present in the synagogue. So he said with the man with the withered hand, step forward. Now, before I address the man with the withered hand, let's look at Jesus's question in verse four. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. They should have answered, to do good, to save lives. That should have been, it's an easy one, right? Oh, I got this one, Lord. Jesus, I got it. Do good, save lives. I know the answer. But the hardness of their heart revealed that they did not truly understand the intent behind the Sabbath day laws. Jesus would later condemn them in Mark 7, 8, saying that they were rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep their traditions and Paul would later write about the traditions of religion, saying in Colossians 2.8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul actually there in Colossians 2.8, covering a vast area. I would say that this would rightly apply to the stuff that's going on here in the United States. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. The wokeness that's going on in our nation today could be a form of philosophy that is actually cheating our youth in our society. Empty deceit, the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world. We can't say simply he or she anymore. You have to say they or them. I have not addressed anybody as a they or a them. Unless there was a group of people together and they, that works, plural, I understand those things. We need to be willing to test the traditions of men, the philosophies of men, the empty deceit, even in the church. This is because the traditions of man are 
often in line with the basic principles of the world and not according to the word of God. In Matthew's account, Jesus further revealed the hypocrisy, the hardness of their hearts, when Matthew tells us in Matthew 12, verses 11 and 12, he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So Jesus knew that every man there, if they owned animals, they would feed their animals on the Sabbath, right? They would take care of the livestock. If a sheep fell into a pit, they wouldn't say to the sheep, too bad, little buddy, wait until after the Sabbath and I'll come back and rescue you. They knew that he would be in danger. He'd be in danger for predators, right? They would lift them out. We have a similar hypocrisy. I've already touched on it with the overturn of Road versus Wade today, but I was thinking about this earlier this week. A similar his hypocrisy that's been going on for years in our world, especially here in the United States, where there are those who value animal rights higher than they do babies in the womb. You go try to go to Eagle's Nest, if you can climb that high to get to their eggs, and you mess with that eagle and its little coming offspring, and you'll be in federal prison for doing something like that. It's a similar hypocrisy. So obedience, verse 5. When he looked around at them with anger, we don't hear those words used of Jesus too often, being grieved of the hardness of their hearts. That's why he was angry, because their hearts were so hard that they would put the needs of an animal over a human. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. So in the synagogue that day was a man who had an obvious need. And the enemies of Christ recognized that Jesus loves. He loves to help those with great need. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief has come to kill and to destroy, but I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. It is in the nature of Jesus to bring life to those who look to him in faith. Therefore, one fallen sheep received the attention of Jesus that day, that man with the withered hand. Now, Jesus said two things to him in verse three. He commanded the man to step forward. By the man stepping forward, we see his obedience to Jesus even amid opposition. Maybe it took courage for the man to stand up, to step forward in the presence of Jesus. It's different in the synagogue. If Jesus was teaching that day in the synagogue, he would have been the one sitting and everybody else would have been standing. So it makes sense that he asked him to step forward. He was already standing. But in our mindset today in the church, the preacher stands and the people sit. So the preacher would say, stand up. So just got to kind of take it from Jewish customs to today, but either step forward, stand up. The second thing, Jesus commanded him to stretch forth his hand. Now, it didn't take as much faith for the man to stand up to step forward because his legs worked, right? But his hand was withered. 
There was something wrong with his hand. It did not work. It was so obvious that even the enemies of Christ knew there was something wrong with this guy's hand. It took a lot of faith for the man to stretch forth his hand. For Jesus was asking him to do the impossible. But by doing so, his hand was made completely whole. And through Jesus, the impossible can become possible. Matthew 19, 25 and 26 tells us, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. Now this is talking about salvation at this passage, Matthew 19. It is the passage where Jesus would say, it's easier for a rich man to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go into heaven. And the apostles were asking, who then can be saved? If the rich, who we thought were blessed by God, have a difficult time getting into heaven, who then can be saved? And Jesus responded, Matthew 19, 26. He looked at them, said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So he stretched forth his hand, immediately it was whole. But we see the hardness of their hearts in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Now we discover that Mark loves to use the word immediately in his gospel. He'll often say that immediately this, immediately that, in the work of Jesus, uh, really speaking about somewhat the urgency of what was happening. It didn't take, you know, a long time for this man's hole to give. I think it's a little better. My hand's getting a little better. I think maybe in a few weeks it'll be back to normal. No, it was so fast that the enemies of Christ immediately went out, plotted against him. Here they're with the Herodians. The Herodians are only named three times in the New Testament Gospels, uh, twice telling the same event, another time in a different situation. And they were probably a political party that favored the line of Herod as kings over Israel. Herod was not a legal king on the throne of Israel. The Herodian line came from Edom, the Edomites. And the Herodians saw Jesus as a threat to the throne, but in reality, Jesus, coming from the tribe of Judah, was the true heir of the throne of David. So the Herodians, probably a political party, but that's very interesting because we've had religious rulers, now we have political uh, people getting involved and they're coming against Jesus Christ. Though a notable miracle was done, no longer did they simply want to find something against Jesus. Now they sought to destroy him. In this sanctuary today, I believe that there are those among us who have the need of the healing touch of Jesus. Maybe the same words that Jesus spoke to this man, he's speaking to one of us today or to all of us. For us, it might be a stand up since you're all sitting down. For me, it would be a step forward since I'm already standing. Stretch out your hand or stretch out that need to Jesus. And at the end of this message, I want to give us an opportunity to do just that. We need to understand it's the nature of Jesus to help those with greatest need. 
In our next point, we're going to go over to Matthew chapter 12. Remember, this is a chronological journey through the Bible, so we're in the Gospels, not the Bible, the whole Bible, but in the Gospels. And we find that it seems the next event that was recorded by the Gospel authors, here it was Matthew and Mark that records this event, was the great multitude that sought after Jesus. And so this is kind of a immediately following situation, but we'll learn that Jesus withdrew himself. He went to a secluded place, so there's some time passing. Jesus is kind of getting away from the immediate situation at hand, and a little bit of time passes. As we'll see, a great multitude gathers, some of them traveling from at least 115 miles. So uh, it would take a little bit for this to take place, but this is the next portion that they give us from Matthew and Mark. And we're going to read from Luke's Gospel, verses 15 through 21. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. Matthew 12, verse 15. When Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet Isaiah the prophet behold my servant whom i have chosen my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased i will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the gentiles he will not quarrel nor cry out nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets a bruised reed he will not break a smoking flax he will not quench Till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will trust. So now, having knowledge that they were plotting his destruction, Jesus withdrew, withdrew from that place, that area where he was at. We need to understand that Jesus was on a God-ordained timetable. He was not going to allow anyone to interrupt or circumvent his mission. He was trying to hold down the popularity. That's why we read, uh, not only did he heal them all, but verse 16, he warned them not to make him known. Why wouldn't Jesus want people to share about him? At this point, he was trying to hold down the popularity until the time was right for him to declare himself as the Messiah, which he did during the triumphal entry. And before the week was over, he was hung on the cross and buried in a tomb. So he was trying to prevent anyone from interrupting, circumventing his mission. When the time was right, he would reveal himself. So he warned the people, don't tell anyone. And they told everyone. And his popularity even got greater. Just know this, today Jesus is not telling his followers, keep it quiet, don't tell anybody what I'm doing for you, I don't want anybody to know. He's actually told us, go tell. And we do the reverse, we keep it quiet. We got it backwards. So Mark says, that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the Sea of Galilee. According to Mark, people came from the Galilee, from Judea, Jerusalem, 
uh, beyond the Jordan, from Tyre, from Sidon. People traveling, as I said, up to at least 115 miles. If you look on a map of the area of Israel where they were at, they were traveling in dry and mountainous regions to hear Jesus teach, to experience his touch. John 6, 2 tells us great multitudes followed him because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were dis diseased. And Mark further explains that the great multitudes were so pressing in on Jesus that he told his disciples, have a boat ready. He had an escape boat right there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. If they pressed in too much, Jesus could simply step into the boat. He could pull back from the shore and have safety. Mark tells us to prevent him from being crushed by the multitude. Even so, the Word of God tells us in Matthew 12, 15, He healed them all. Mark 3, 10, He healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about Him to touch Him. Why did the people travel so far to come to Jesus? I believe that some hoped to see great things done by Him. Others hoped that they might that the Lord Jesus would do great things for them. My question to you, why do you follow Jesus? I believe that Jesus is still able to heal and to save those who come to him in life-saving faith. Now, the reason I chose Matthew was not to, you know, I did Mark, so I got to do Matthew. Matthew quoted this prophecy from Isaiah. Mark did not. So I wanted to take a moment to look at the prophecy that came from Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. And as Matthew quoted the prophecy, it says in verse 18, Behold, my servant, who I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. This is God speaking. I will put my spirit upon him. He will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor Will anyone hear his voice in the streets? A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. Tell, this is a big tell, till he sends forth justice to victory. It's not saying that Jesus will not deal with these things, but the first portion of this is dealing with the first coming of Jesus Christ that till he sends forth justice to victory deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then the very end, in his name the Gentiles would trust, will trust, I believe that's talking about the church age that we're in right now. The opportunity right now that whosoever calls upon the name of the G Lord Jesus, that they will be, can be saved. So Mark in Mark 1, 10 and 11, when Jesus was being baptized, we find these same words from Isaiah where God said that he's my servant, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. When Jesus was baptized, when he came out of the waters, Mark testifies in Mark 1, 10, he saw the heavens open, Jesus seeing the heavens open, pardoned, parting, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, a voice coming from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
The same words as found in Isaiah 42, prophesying concerning the coming Messiah, the same words being testified as happening at the baptism of Christ. We also know those same words were used at the mountain of transfiguration where God uh, spoke from heaven in the hearing of Peter, James, and John when Jesus transfigured into his glorified body that this is my son in whom I am well pleased and told Peter, James, and John, hear him. So at his first coming, Jesus did not quarrel. He did not cry out. His voice wasn't heard in the streets in the sense of uh, trying to build up a following behind him, a rude bruised reed, or he did not break. Uh, he did not quench a smoking flax. This is why Jesus withdrew himself. Remember, he did not want to circumvent anyone from having him prematurely present himself as the Messiah. And that's why he was kind of on the down low on this. He didn't uh, really reveal himself to too many at this point. But he was teaching the word of God. He was preaching that repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And when he would introduce himself as the Messiah, within that week he would be hung on a cross. Just as God's Spirit was upon Jesus at his first coming, when he paid the demands of our sins upon the cross, so too will the fullness of the Spirit be upon Jesus at his second coming. That is why when Jesus comes the second time, he will send forth justice to victory. Isaiah 9, 7, often, often, uh, related to the birth of Christ, but it's really talking about the second coming of Christ where it says, of the increase of his government and his peace, there'll be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. And thankfully, we do not have to wait until Jesus comes a second time to experience victory over sin. That victory has been sent forth through the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. He's already victorious, and now he offers life, life to those who look to him in life-saving faith. In Romans 3:26, the word tells us to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. And may we never forget that there is victory in the name of Jesus. And we close out today's teaching in Luke's gospel. It's also found in Mark chapter 3, but we're going to take it from Luke's gospel, chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. And we have Jesus choosing the 12 and naming of the 12 disciples here, becoming his apostles. So again, for context, it says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to him, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles, Simon, 
whom he also named Peter. Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. So by the second year of his ministry, Jesus had many disciples who followed him. There were many. At one point, we'll learn of Jesus sending out 72 by 2. So there were many disciples. From the many, he chose 12 to be his apostles. But first, we notice that Jesus prayed all night before choosing the 12. And it reminds us of the importance of prayer, especially when making major decisions in our lives. Psalm 16, 7 says, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night sessions. So sometimes those night sessions, those nighttime prayer, the Lord can speak to those who are willing to tarry with him long into the night. I am not a great long into the night terrier. Terrier was a phrase that would come back from, you know, the churches I attended as a a kid and they would have tarrying meetings it just simply mean waiting upon the lord and people would wait together or watch meetings wait together in prayer to the lord now i'm not good at night much better in the morning uh sometimes i don't appreciate the fact that my body wants me to wake up at 4:30 every morning i don't know why it's too early i admit and I'm very gracious to Lily, and I do not get up till 5, but usually I'm already looking at the clock before 5 o'clock, um, and she has to get up anyways at some point. So by 5 o'clock, I'll start rousing her up, but rarely do we have to have the alarm for me. Sometimes when I lay there waiting, I'll begin praying. Sometimes it'll be a prayer that I'll say before we go to bed that, my mind wakes up beginning to think about these things. I think it's important to uh, remember the five disciplines that I've done of godly living. One of those is meditation. It's waiting upon the Lord, um, waiting for the Lord to speak to you. Sometimes we don't get an instant answer, and so we need to be patient, but the importance of prayer. So he had many disciples. Mathetes is the Greek word. It means to be a learner or pupil. It can also refer to a believer in Jesus Christ. But apostolos, the word for apostle that we translate in our Bible, it means one sent with a a message. So an ambassador would be this type of apostolos. This word could mean someone who is sent forth with a message after the resurrection of jesus christ 11 of the 12 would be sent forth to proclaim the gospel or the good news of jesus christ to others jesus is also called an apostle in hebrews 3 1 saying therefore holy brethren partakers of the heavenly calling consider the apostle the high priest of our confession jesus christ so this term jesus was sent by god from heaven to earth So in that sense, the apostle, Jesus Christ. We think about the apostles. We might think that they lived glorious lives, lives of ministry to Jesus, and in many ways they did. But in reality, 
The treasures that they were laying up were not earthbound treasures, but heavenly reward. Paul described their life in this way. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 9 through 13. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. The present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. We labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. So Paul had a whole different perspective of what it meant to be an apostle because he lived it. I do have a problem, and I, you know, it's just, there could be still apostles on this earth today. I'm not saying that God can't send forth men and deem them as apostles. I have a problem when I go into church. It happened a few years ago in a church over in Waukegan where I was introduced to the apostle of that church. It's like, really? What makes you an apostle? Um, I didn't debate with him. I just wonder about it. But would that person that I met a few years ago described as an apostle... Would he describe his life the same way Paul described theirs? As a spectacle to the world. As fools for Christ. As considered weak, dishonored, hungering and thirsting, poorly clothed, beaten or homeless. Laboring with their own hands. When being reviled, they bless. When being persecuted, they endured. When being defamed, they entreat called the filth of the world, the offscarring of all things. But these were the 12 that Jesus chose, 12. And though we may not have that same calling as an apostle, Jesus has chosen and appointed us to bear fruit. Jesus said in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I've chosen you. I have appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So in that sense of going is that word apostolos, a messenger sent forth. To go and to bear fruit, that your fruit should remain in whatever you ask in my Father's name, that he may give you. And how do we bear fruit? We learned this at men's breakfast yesterday. Ladies, see if you can... Pick it out next Saturday when you have breakfast reading the same chapter. So this is what we learned in men's breakfast yesterday. I already had the first part of this in my notes this morning. I added the rest of it because I had to because we went through it yesterday. (laughs) Number one, abide in Jesus. Number two, read his word. Number three, spend time with him in prayer. And number four, Give opportunity for the Spirit to work in your life. Abide in Jesus. And how do we abide? We read the Word of God. We pray to Jesus. We give opportunity for the Spirit to work in our lives. Jesus said in John 15, 4, Abide in me and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So how do we bear fruit? We have to abide in Jesus. So the 12 were to live with Jesus, to walk with him, to hear him teach, to watch him in all the different situations of life, both the good and the bad. Why the number 12? I don't know. Here's some possibilities. There were 12 distinguished tribes in Israel. There were actually 13 tribes, but 12 were distinguished. We refer to them as the 12 tribes of Israel, even though they numbered 13. In the book of Revelation, we read of the foundation stones and the pillars in the New Jerusalem and of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles being named, the foundation stones and the 12 foundations. So I said that wrong. Foundation stones, 12, 12 pillars. And so one relating to the 12 tribes of Israel, one relating to the 12 apostles. Some say the number 12 was because the church was replacing Israel. I do not believe that. Though the number 12 is the same as with the 12 tribes of Israel, we find when God does a work at Jesus' second coming, he again is going to work in the nation of Israel. So the church is not a replacement. Israel didn't believe, so the church replaces Israel. No, the Bible clearly states that right now, and the book of Romans tells us that Israel is being blinded, in a sense, until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so right now is the church age, and God is working through the church. But one day he will work again in the nation of Israel. But here we find the nation of Israel largely rejecting the Messiah and it's true that the church stands on the foundation of ministries that's been built by those before us. But truly, Jesus Christ is that foundation upon which we build our life. Eleven of the twelve offered their lives in sacrifice and service to Jesus. And it's my prayer that we would also live our lives in sacrifice and service to Jesus, that we would finish our race with joy. In Acts 2024, 20, Paul at the, toward the end of his life, well, not the very end of his life because when he said these words, he would go to Jerusalem, he'd be arrested, he'd spend two years uh, in prison there in um, Caesarea, and he would spend two years in prison in Rome after that, so he still had time. It is believed traditionally that after two years in Rome, he would be released and he would go on another missionary trip that's not recorded in the Bible, re-arrested and then ultimately beheaded because of his faith in Jesus Christ. He was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen and that was considered a, a death of honor for the Romans. But that's tradition and uh, some of that is revealed to us in scripture but before all that happened and there was prophecy telling warning 
Paul not to go to Jerusalem, that only death and chains await you there. But when he heard these things, and he heard it several times, he finally said in Acts 20, 24, so that I might finish my race with joy in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Prior to that, Paul said, none of these things move me. Yeah, death and chains may await me there, but my goal is to finish my race with joy. The ministry that he received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify the gospel of God's grace to others. So the 12 apostles, we'll just briefly work our way through the list. Peter, in the gospels, he's always listed first. When they list out the apostles, if it's only two or three or all 12, Peter is always listed first in the Bible. He was a leading figure in the first century church, as we know. But he was also a man, if you read the Gospels, he made mistakes. He would like talk when he shouldn't. He would step out of a boat, lack the faith to stay on top of the water, which none of us could do, by the way. But Jesus, for a, just a moment, gave him that ability as long as he kept his eyes on the Lord. He would often make mistakes. But I love his story because his story gives me hope. His brother Andrew, he might be best described as always bringing others to Jesus. Every time we meet Andrew in Scripture, except for maybe the listing of the 12 here, but when specifically talking about Andrew, we find him always bringing others to Jesus. He's the one that brought Peter and introduced him to Jesus. He's the one that brought the boy with five loaves and, and fishes to give at the mountain of trans, not the mountain of transfiguration, the Sermon on the Mount when he fed the 5,000. He's the one that was with Philip when the Greeks wanted to see Jesus. Andrew is always known as bringing others to Jesus. That would be cool to be known by. Oh, this is Fred. I'm just pulling a name out of the air. He likes to bring people to Jesus. I want to be a Fred in that sense. I want to be an Andrew. Both Andrew and John, it appears in Scripture, were first disciples of John the Baptist, and thus John may have introduced his brother James to Jesus. James was the first apostle that would be martyred for Jesus and is always listed before his brother when it, it's Peter, James, and John, I even say that way all the time, unless you're reading from Luke 9:28, where it's the only place where it says Peter, John, and James. They are often listed together that they're known by the scholars as the inner circle of Christ, that they were always the closest to Jesus. Now, one of the Calvary Chapel uh, evangelists at large, Gail Irwin, would say the reason Jesus kept them close because he had to keep an eye on. They needed to be close. I don't know if that's true or not, but Peter, James, and John. When Jesus found Philip, he said to Philip, follow me. Afterwards, Philip found Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew. And he said to him in John 1, 45 and 46, we have found him of whom Moses in the law spoke. Also, the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael doubted. 
But after he met Jesus, he said, Rabbi, John 1, 49, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Verse 15 and 16, we have Matthew, Thomas, James, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. So Matthew, the tax collector, we recently studied about him. In Luke 5, 27 through 32, we learned that he was a tax collector. After calling, uh, Jesus called him to follow him. Matthew gave a great feast, invited his friends. Tax collectors were despised. So who showed up? Uh, the tax collectors and fellow sinners. Caused problems for the religious rulers, but not for Jesus. He was right there in the mix with them. And Matthew was excited to share with his friends and family that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. We don't know anything more of Matthew. He was a tax collector. He had a meal with his friends, invited Jesus to be there after he was called to follow Jesus. But we are eternally grateful that he wrote the gospel that is known by his name. Thomas, also called Didymus, it means twin, best known as, for us, Doubting Thomas. He's the one that after Jesus rose from the grave and showed himself to the other apostles, 10 were present, Thomas wasn't there. He said, I will not believe unless I can uh, touch the nail scars in his hands and feet, thrust my hand into his side, gross, but that's what he said. Eight days later, Jesus would show himself to him and say, go ahead, Thomas, have at it. And he would respond, my Lord, my God, so he's known as Doubting Thomas, but think about this. It's Thomas who asked Jesus in John 14, 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going or how can we know the way? And Jesus' response to Thomas, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. I'm glad Doubting Thomas asked a very smart question to Jesus because he gave us a great memory verse, John 14, 6. James, the son of Alphaeus, James also called James the less, possibly because he wasn't that tall, maybe because uh, being second under James, the son of Zebedee, Peter, James, and John, so they had two James, not unusual. When I worked at Jewel Food Store as a, uh, As a clerk, when I was 16, 17 years old, I almost had two stories mixed up there. Um, there were two Johns that worked in the grocery department, Big John and Little John. Why do you think I was called Little John? The other guy was a bit taller than me. He was Big John. So it didn't bother me that over the intercom, Little John, could you come back to whatever? You know, it was, that was me. I was Little John. Or when I worked as a brick mason on one crew, there was three Johns. The boss was a believer. So in order of hire, first, second, and third John. <laughs> I was the last one hired, so guess who I was? I was third John. So he's called James the last. We don't quite know why. And the Bible tells us that his mother, Mary, was a follower of Jesus who witnessed the resurrection. She was there at the tomb. 
Simon called the zealots. The zealots were those who were in opposition against Rome. They actually had assassins. Um, they fought uh, discreetly, though, as assassins, right? When you assassinate, right? You're trying to hide what you were doing. But he was a zealot. He was of the enemy of Rome, opposed the rule of Rome over Israel, but he became a follower of Christ. Judas, the son of James, commonly called Thaddeus. We know nothing more of him except his one question, great questions. He said in John 14, 22, Lord, his question, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? And Jesus responded in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him. We will come to him and make our home in him. So really talking about salvation. We love Jesus. We accept him as our savior. He forgives us of our sins. We strive to keep the very word of God, the spirit then indwells us, not because we try to keep the word of God, but because we receive Jesus as our savior. The Godhead comes and make their home in our life. And then lastly, Judas Iscariot who also became a traitor in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first time that Judas Iscariot is introduced to us in any of the Gospels, they all tell us he's the traitor. He's the betrayer. They're not writing a cliffhanger. I wonder who the betrayer will be. You have to wait till the end of the commercial break to find out. No, they let you know right up front this is the guy at the first mention of his name in every gospel, four of them. They let us know that Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. John tells us the most about Judas. In John 6, 71, Jesus calls Judas a devil. When Mary anointed Jesus with expensive perfume, Judas complained, saying, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii to give to the poor? John goes on to explain that Judas was the treasurer of the disciples. They were not very smart in picking their treasurer because John goes on to say that he was not only their treasurer, he was a thief. He wanted the oil to be sold because he wanted the profit for himself. In John 13, 27, he was possessed by Satan. In John 22:38, he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Or Luke 22:38, he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Although 12 were chosen, only 11 were remained would remain faithful. And as the chosen of Christ, many will fall away, but Jesus Christ has fall, called us to remain faithful to him. There are those who fall away. I've known those who have followed and walked with Christ uh, in my lifetime. I've seen many fall away. He's called us to remain faithful, and I pray that we would be those who remain faithful. So let's wrap this up today. I'm going to do something a little different. We do not have a planned closing song. So often, our hands... Perhaps we have, in the sense of our very first point that we looked at, the man with the withered hand, so often we might have great need. 
maybe we don't physically have a withered hand, but spiritually, there's something just not right. Something desiccating, the Greek word, talking about withered, desiccating, drying up. Something's just not right. Unable to really do the work of God properly. And it could be that the Lord just desires. And I was thinking about this a lot since Thursday. I think, this is what I believe personally, and you can disagree with me or not. I think there's moments in our lives where it's necessary to just take a stand of faith. That, uh, obviously, coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, calling upon him as our Savior, that's a point in your life that is necessary. If you want to become a follower of Jesus, a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, you have to take a stand and acknowledge Jesus as Savior, accept his work upon the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, and receive that gift of salvation. It's a necessary stance that one must take. But it doesn't mean that that's all we have to do. Baptism is another opportunity where we can take a stand where actually in the process of baptism, you're not necessarily standing because you're being dunked under the water, but you are before others testifying of your faith in Jesus Christ. In a sense, spiritually, you're taking a stand. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a great place for us to take that type of stand. Back in 1988, a long, long time ago, there was a Sunday morning where the Lord was so pressing on my heart he spoke to me in a Sunday school class from the book of Romans, chapter 10. And I read just one sentence in that chapter that said, how can they hear without a preacher? And the moment I saw those words, I knew the Lord was calling me to preach. But I had to acknowledge his call upon my life. So we did Sunday school, adult Sunday school class, Lily and I in a Mary's married couples class that Sunday morning. Let the preacher preach. Waited, I don't even know what he preached on that day. I, it didn't matter to me. I knew what I needed to do. So I waited until I knew the preacher would give an altar call. So I waited until the end of the message. And when he gave an altar call, I came forward and said, I think the Lord has called me to preach. I surrendered my life to the ministry. That pastor, Gene White, had me in the pulpit the next Sunday night. If you do that here, I may not have you preaching the next Sunday, but um, that's what he did with me. Remember, I had 10 years of ministry with the band Contender prior to that, and he had seen me teach God's Word in some of those concerts. So he knew of my abilities, uh, even though they weren't great at that point. But... I had to take a stand. There was a point in uh, 1992 where Lily and I, living in Zion, in a house that was built in 1923, that home will be 100 years old next year. Not our home any longer, but we had planned to remodel it, to live there, to stay there. But the Lord started pressing in on me to go to California to the school of ministry, and I, I was kind of trapped. I didn't know where I should go, what I should do. But Lily and I said a prayer, and we said, Lord, if you don't call us, 
me and to the ministry, but us as a couple. And in the process of this, we went to the bank to inquire about a loan to do the remodeling on our home. So when they delayed on that loan, we finally said, if it doesn't come in by this date, then we know the Lord wants us in California. So we set a time stamp on that prayer. The date came, the date went by, the loan officer called after the fact, I've told you this before. He said, I did it, I got your loan all together. And I said, no thank you. The Lord has called us to move to California. It's like, what? He was kind of upset, but it was a stand. Could have said, great, we got the loan, we're staying. But no, we prayed. Now we have to follow through with the prayer. And time and time again, I've seen situations where the Lord has worked, whether making a commitment, setting a time date, taking a stand, being baptized, uh, coming to faith in Jesus Christ, surrendering to ministry, whatever it might be, time and time again, I've seen the Lord work that way in my life, and I believe he does that for you as well. And so, so often it could be that the Lord is calling us. Maybe it's about salvation. Maybe it's about forgiveness of sin. You're saved, but there's something that you know that you haven't surrendered to Jesus. Maybe it's a touch of physical healing. It could be the asking of wisdom or direction in life. Maybe it's praying for a loved one or a friend that has a great need. Remember the four friends who brought their paralytic friend to Jesus? And Jesus saw their faith and said to the man, your sins are forgiving. Sometimes the word, the Lord works through us in behalf of others. Whatever the need might be. I said I've been thinking a lot about this. And so I'm going to ask, if someone feels a tug of Jesus, not Pastor John pulling the emotional strings, But the Lord has been speaking to your heart. Maybe he's saying to you, stand up and stretch forth your hand. And so I want to give you guys an opportunity. If that's you today, I would ask right now as everyone's seated, just stand up and present of us all. Remember the man, he was in the synagogue. He had to step forward. You're sitting down. So my thing to you would be stand up. If that's you, stand up. And then stretch out your hand to Jesus that he might do a work in your life. Stand up and stretch out your hand. Oh, Father, you see the people standing and you see the hands forward, Lord. And you know the need. This very hour, Lord, we pray in faith, whatever the need might be, If it's salvation, direction, physical healing, spiritual healing, a call to ministry, whatever that might be, Lord. In faith, Lord, we stretch our our hands toward you this morning. And we ask that you would work. Work in our midst. Touch our lives like only you can. And let this day, Lord, be a day that we remembered like I recounted several moments in my life just prior to this. Let this day be a day, Lord. Remember when we stood and we stretched out our hands. Let there be testimony of the work that you did in our lives this day. Let it be like 
the Gospel of Mark, who loved to say the word immediately. Let it be that you, Lord, immediately do a work in our lives, so much so that others see it and testify of it, whether they believe in Jesus or not. Let it be seen among others. We give these things over to you this day in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's the rest of us stand. And I pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.